The scripture this morning is from Mark 1, 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Well, this morning, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open to Mark, Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 14. We're going to look at uh, a bit of an introduction and then uh, one of the first real episodes in the Gospel of Mark. We are in this sermon series. We began it just a few weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark, On the Road with Jesus. Uh, on the Road with Jesus. Jesus is moving. He's moving right here in our passage. He's already going from town to town, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. He's uh, going to uh, the Sea of Galilee, and he's in one place, and he calls two brothers. Then he moves immediately to another place, and they immediately follow him. And then by the time we get to next week's passage, just verses later, immediately he's going somewhere else. He's moving on a road. Jesus has business to do. While Jesus is moving quickly through Mark, we aren't. Uh, We are moving slow, and I hope it's sweet. Uh, We are moving slow through this gospel. We, I I think, will get a different look at the gospel or at Jesus in this slow moving through the gospel of Mark than perhaps we've gotten before. Uh, by going slow, I hope that we will see things that we haven't seen before. When the elders were together yesterday, just sharing some of the things that we've already seen, just in a few verses in Mark as we're reading throughout the week through this gospel and as we're spending time on Sunday mornings together and as we're meditating in, on, in community groups and so on, that um, it's almost like we're getting up so close to Jesus, walking so carefully, closely paying attention to him. It's almost like we can see the stubble on his beard. Never really noticed that before. I hope that that's true. I hope that we see things about Jesus that we just sort of have gotten used to seeing as we move quickly through the reading. As we've gone, I know that there have been things that I've already seen uh, with you. I've already seen how Jesus is perfect in righteousness in our place, even in his baptism, even his baptism fulfilling all righteousness. I know that I've seen that Jesus is the better Adam who defeated temptation, even at the deepest point of human weakness and exhaustion. I know that I saw that the purpose of the passage on the temptation was not to teach me not how to avoid temptation. But rather, the first purpose of that passage is to tell us that Jesus defeated temptation in the flesh for us. He is our perfect righteousness. I know that I have seen that Jesus is completely devoted to the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. That he is bringing good news 
And he is bringing that good news to pass in the presence of the king and his kingdom. This morning, I think at the center of our passage is the idea that is really at the center of the book of Mark, that Jesus has come as a servant. Jesus has come as a servant. And he's come as a servant to a singular purpose. The purpose of Jesus' coming is to give his entire life to secure a kingdom for those who follow him. Jesus has given his entire life for the purpose of securing a kingdom for those who follow him. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray as we read this passage that we would come to appreciate, understand, enjoy, and place our faith in by repentance and belief in this gospel that you proclaim. That we would seek and enter into this kingdom that you have brought at hand. And Lord, that we would quickly, at your call, by your effective, invasive, transformative call, we would follow. And you would turn us into a whole different people and make of us a whole new community. Lord, I pray that you would do this by your spirit and word this morning, in our midst this morning. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're going to walk our way slowly, carefully through the passage. I hope that you'll do so by following along with me. The first thing that we see in verse 14 of Mark chapter 1 is now after John was arrested. We met John just a couple weeks ago. We met John the Baptist, who this great prophet who comes to prepare the way for the Lord. All right? John is not the point. And in the other Gospels, John makes a really big deal of not being the point. John is there to point to the one who is the big deal, to prepare the way for the one who is the big deal. And we also found out the way that you prepare the way for the coming of the Lord is through one particular means, that is repentance of every other Lord. When the true Lord is coming, you repent of every other way, every other kingdom, every other master than the Lord who is coming. And that's what John did. He came proclaiming that the Lord is coming, the King is coming, the Messiah, the Anointed One is coming, and we must be prepared through repentance. But our passage begins, the public ministry of Jesus begins with a loss, a setback. You might say a defeat it begins with, now, after John was arrested, what? Jesus. Now, that's interesting. This public pro proclamation of Jesus, the public proclamation of the gospel, begins with a defeat. Surely, part of the purpose of the historical reality of the Old Testament prophets of which John is heralded John, it's as a sort of a culmination of all of the prophets pointing to the coming of the Messiah is that the mystery that was proclaimed by the prophets about the coming of the Messiah, that the proclamation of the mystery is now completed. He's arrested, he's set aside, and now the mystery is revealed in Jesus Christ. He's arrested, he's set aside. Really, he doesn't have much to do with the rest of the account. The work of the prophets is done. The object of the prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus. John is arrested, 
Jesus. He's here to reveal, to proclaim, and to perform the good news, which is the gospel of God. Jesus is here. Charles Spurgeon says this of the fact that the public proclamation of Jesus begins with the arrest of John. When one servant of God is laid aside, it is a call to the rest to be more earnest. Now, that is a principle that is for us in here. We aren't Jesus. When one of us steps aside, one of us, the others of us do not, don't come alongside and say, you know what, now I'm here. That's what's happening here. There is one who is greater who takes the place of John as the central character of the gospel. Jesus alone both proclaims and performs the gospel, okay? None of us can step into that role of performance. This is the work of the Christ alone. But we do over and over again, as those who follow after even these four men that are called to be Jesus' disciples and to proclaim his gospel that Jesus himself begins by proclaiming, we over and over again throughout history step into that role of proclaimer. One is set aside and another steps into the position of proclamation. Charles Spurgeon continues, so after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee, sometimes a loss, maybe a gain. And if the loss of John was the means of bringing out Jesus, so be it, right? So Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now it's interesting that it begins also, the ministry of Jesus begins with an arrest, because the ministry of the gospel is accompanied by many handings over. The word for arrest is the word to hand over. In this case, John the Baptist was handed over to the authorities. From beginning to end, the gospel ministry is accompanied by many handings over. Jesus' ministry itself will be accompanied by a handing over. When Jesus begins to get less cryptic, less talking in parables, and begins to pull his disciples aside, really beginning at the end of Mark chapter 8 and going on through the remainder of the gospel of Mark, When he begins to talk to his disciples very specifically about what the Christ has come to do, one of the things that is a part of that gospel proclamation is that the Messiah would be handed over. In Mark chapter 9, verse 31, it says this. It's central to Jesus' proclamation of himself. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, handed over, arrested, and they're going to kill him, he says. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Let us not forget that right from the beginning of Jesus' proclamation of the gospel, as it's recorded for us in the gospel of Mark, there is suffering. Even the handing over, ultimately, of Jesus to the authorities who would kill him, and then he would rise. And disciples and the apostles quickly begin to be handed over, even after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The disciples themselves are handed over, over and again, to the authorities. We shouldn't be surprised that the public proclamation of the gospel, right at the beginning, is accompanied by an arrest. These first recipients of the gospel of Mark, do you remember? Just a couple of weeks ago, where are they? 
When they first receive, Mark pens the letter, he sends it off with one to deliver the letter to Rome. Where is the church meeting? Well, in a nice church building in Rome, of course, some basilica, right? Mm -mm. They're hiding in sewers and catacombs under the persecution of Nero because they knew if they were on the surface, they too, surface, they too would be handed over. What a blessing. What a kindness that Mark reminds them that the public proclamation of the gospel often is accompanied by a handing over to the authorities. I remember when I was first um, examining a sense, a, a call into church planting ministry. I remember when, when standing in a room with a, a number of other ministers and thinking, this, this is how I know it, like, personally, that this is where I want to go, no matter what, is when I realized that one of these days, if I fell or was handed over or set aside for any reason in ministry, that I hoped that my dead body would fall in the mud like a group of soldiers and someone would simply use my dead body as a more solid platform to keep running forward to push forward in the mission. That's what we see here. John the Baptist is just another body who has been given over to the proclamation of the gospel of the Messiah, and Jesus steps right there and moves so forward that glorious proclamation. And make no mistake, John the Baptist is not just a dead body. He is a resurrected body because of the gospel that Jesus has come to proclaim. And that's our business. Is that what you want? Do you want to go somewhere, preach the gospel, die and be forgotten? As long as where you went, the gospel is remembered. This is how the public proclamation works. It's interesting this morning. That same idea is actually happening on a very small scale this morning. Justin Sarah at Cross Point Palm Bay woke up this morning sick at 3 o'clock a.m. Friends, 3 o'clock a.m. is a really bad time to get a text message as an elder and find out that the preacher this morning isn't going to be able to preach. All right, that's tough. This morning, Justin Sarah has been handed over to sickness. And James Rep is stepping in right where one is set aside, another is ready to step in and to preach, to read the scriptures and hold out the proclamation of God. Are you ready? Are you ready to step in? Where is there already a place that has Someone has been set aside, and there is a need for you to step in with the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Are we ready to step in or to be set aside? In any event, are we ready to preach the good news, the good news that Jesus himself begins preaching? That's where we need to go. We need to go. That's where the gospel goes. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, so when he proclaims the gospel of God, what did he say? What is the good news? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus preaches. What's the content of his preaching? The content of his preaching is that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the application of his preaching? Repent and believe the gospel. Now, the, his 
preaching begins with a statement that the time is fulfilled. There's two ways to think about time. One, uh, one definition of the word time, and the word time that is being used here in our passage is that the implication of being especially fit for something. That the moment that you are in has the implication of being especially fit for something. Look at the passage. What is it talking about? The time is fulfilled. The moment that Jesus was in was especially fit for the kingdom of God to be at hand. It's the difference between looking at a clock, seeing that it's noon, and saying, oh, lunch break, right? We do this in my house. We, we homeschool our children, and so we don't have like a bell that goes off. Instead, they tend to set alarms. And when the 12 o'clock alarm goes off, lunchtime, you know what I'm talking about? When the bell goes off, and the teacher's like right in the middle of trying to explain what the homework is in school. The bell goes off, everybody stands up, and the teacher's like, I know it's technically the time, but the time is not fulfilled. <laughs> it's not time for lunch. It's time for me to finish giving you your homework assignment. This is the difference between it being a time on a clock. Well, it's uh, AD zero uh, or AD 30 must be time for us to start proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. It's not like that. It's the difference between knowing it's noon and therefore it's lunch versus knowing that all the guests have arrived for Thanksgiving dinner. The thermometer in the turkey has popped and it's ready. The table is set and the kids are beginning to complain because they're hungry. And you know, yeah, it's about 1.30, 2 o'clock, but the time is fulfilled. It's time to sit down and eat. Whatever is happening in this moment it's not that the chronology, it's not that the, the time on the clock or the year and the date was the right time. It's that this was the moment that all of history has been waiting for. This is when the time is filled up. The moment is full up with this. And what is the this? The proclamation of the kingdom of God. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Now, what does it say is true in this moment? What have we all been waiting for? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. What does that mean? You know, when I read it, often I've read it and thought, if something is at hand, I've thought the kingdom of God is almost here, okay? That, that Jesus had some stuff to do, it's almost here, and then I'm going to die on the cross, and then the kingdom of God will finally be here, right? No, that's not what the, think about the words. If the kingdom of God is at hand, how far away is it? Think about the metaphor. If something is at hand, you can reach out with your hand and touch it. What is Jesus saying? And this isn't a podcast. This isn't a megaphone. Jesus is talking to people that he is with. And he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand because you can reach out and touch me. The kingdom of God is at hand because the king is here. And friends, that tells us so much about what it is that Jesus is proclaiming. He's not proclaiming, when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's not talking about some 
vague idea of a kingdom or a philosophy or simply a religious tenet or teaching. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking about the king. How do we know the kingdom of God is at hand? Because the king is at hand. The king of the kingdom. We can get so focused talking about the kingdom. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is and is in heaven. What are we talking about? Jesus, be king here. Rule here. Be present here. May your, the domain of your rule extend to here. Jesus is the king of the kingdom. One dictionary defines the word kingdom this way. The domain ruled by a king and a queen. And if the kingdom is at hand, the extent of the rule of the king is present. And Jesus is literally there. The king is actually physically there. And the kingdom's going to start with his words. But what is the kingdom of God? What is that? It's actually really quite simple if you get the first definition, if you understand what a kingdom is. If a kingdom is the domain ruled by a king or a queen, the, do- the kingdom of God is the domain ruled by God as the sovereign king. And God's there. Jesus, the God-man, is present, and he's saying the kingdom is here. This has been true throughout the scriptures. This is not a new concept. God is the king of all of creation, and he's doing something in creation, particularly in redemption history. If you go back to Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, Exodus chapter 15, verse 18, in in this passage that is just after the Lord has rescued the people of God out of Egypt and is establishing them as a people of worship to his great name, he's establishing himself as their king, he says this, The Lord will reign forever and ever. We're used to saying words like that in worship and they sort of trip off our tongue. But do we know what it means? What does it mean that the Lord will reign? He's king. He's king. Is God king? If he's king, then he has a kingdom. And on this day, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is here. In Exodus 15, it continues. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and their horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them because the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. You see, Pharaoh thought that he was both king and a god, but the Lord dominated him, dominated, exercised dominion over him, and rescued a people for himself because the Lord is king. And he made his dominion known on that day in the Exodus. And we see that reign play itself out throughout redemption history. We see his domain over all of creation at creation. We even see him commission a humanity to share with him in this dominion. Do we get how big of a deal that is? Then he made all of creation, and then he took one little part of his creation, called it man, in his image, male and female, he created them, and then he said, you will share with me in dominion over creation. Go, exercise it. Friends, that's a big deal. 
That's why it's such a big deal that we refused his kingship and had tried to establish ourselves as kings over creation. And that's why his judgment, the right of his dominion over all of creation, including humanity, comes down so hard in the form of death as judgment over sin. Not only did we reject his way, we tried to usurp his rule exercising our own dominion rather than his. Do you understand the severity of your sin? Do you understand that you are saying you're just like Pharaoh, you are a king and a god? Do we understand the severity of our sin? And we see that God comes in and he rescues the people for himself because his plan's not done. His dominion will not be thwarted. He is going to call a people to exercise dominion with him and it's gonna come in the form of a rescue out of Egypt and the giving of a law. Why a law? Because he's king and kings get to give laws. That's one of the ways that they exercise their dominion. A way in which the kingdom would be governed and the law that Christ The law that he gives is the law that Christ would fulfill in the place of all of those who would follow after him. And now the reign of the king in our passage this morning is the king physically manifest, walking around with sandals, right? Using words to proclaim that the kingdom is at hand. The messianic king has come now. There is an error that has made its way into the language of the church regarding the kingdom of God. Listen, I would put it this way. What is the business of the church as it relates to the kingdom of God? One of the words that's made its way into and often precedes our use of the word kingdom of God is is our business to usher in the kingdom of God. But listen to the way that Jesus speaks. Jesus does not speak of bringing about the kingdom of God. When he talks to his disciples, instead, he talks about seeking and entering into a kingdom that is already at hand. What does Jesus proclaim? He proclaims the time is fulfilled. It's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Is the king powerful enough to establish the kingdom or not? What's the business of the subjects? Well, to build the kingdom for the king? No. The business of the subjects is to enter under his rule, to seek his kingdom and enter in. Mark uses this language. In Mark chapter 10, verse 24, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. You know, I hang out a lot with a lot of ministry people, pastors and other leaders, and I hear how hard it is to establish the kingdom. I wonder if one of the reasons why it's so hard to establish the kingdom is because the kingdom is already established. Maybe we're making a grave error in fighting against the king to establish an alternative kingdom, even if we decide to call it church. What if our business is to join with Jesus in the proclamation of the kingdom that he has already established? What if our business is to humble ourselves, to seek the king and the kingdom, and by grace, enter in? We don't create, we don't fashion, and we don't usher in the kingdom. 
Rather, we are ushered into the kingdom by the work of the Christ. We enter the kingdom not by ushering in something that we have manifest. We don't get to get creative about the kingdom. The kingdom already has a law and a way. We don't have to get creative. We proclaim it. We repent of our false kingdoms, and we enter in by faith. We don't create the kingdom, we seek the kingdom, and we enter in by faith. We don't usher in the kingdom, we enter into the kingdom. I want to read a quote. I know I'm hitting this hard, but I hear it so often. It's, it's sort of just made its way into the DNA of the culture of so much of the church. I think it's worth taking a second to offer this corrective. And this corrective is going to come up a lot throughout the Gospel of Mark as he speaks about the kingdom often. Herman Ritterboss, he writes this. I think it's so powerful. The absolutely theocentric, God-centered. All right, don't get scared. Big word, not a big deal. The, it's a big deal, <laughs> God-centered. Um, the absolutely God-centered character of the kingdom of God in Jesus' preaching implies that its coming consists entirely in God's own action and perfectly dependent on his activity. We don't establish and we do not extend the kingdom of God. God does. It's his kingdom. The kingdom is not a state or a condition, not a society created or promoted by men. It will not come through an imminent earthly evolution, nor through moral action. It is not men who prepare it for God. God, we're going to make a kingdom, and when you return, you're going to be so happy. Well done, my good and faithful servants. Man, that is reserved for someone. And he already said it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. May I be found in him, not trying to become an alternative him. He continues, all such thoughts mean a hopelessly superficial interpretation of the tremendous thought of the fullness and finality of God's coming as king to redeem and to judge. As Jesus proclaims the kingdom, what do we do? What is our role in this text, right? What does he say? You don't have to get creative here. You don't have to sit back and think. What does it say? It says that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. What is our role? Well, we seek and enter. We pray and we wait and we repent and we believe. Repent and believe. That is the application for us. First and foremost, when Jesus preaches the gospel, and he comes to the application point, we ought to listen and never stop listening to the application point that Jesus gives when he preaches the gospel. What is our business? Church, what's your business? Repent and believe. What does it mean to repent? Well, it, repent means to turn from. Well, what is being turned from? We turn from the kingdoms of this world, all hope of saving ourselves, all hope of establishing good little churches by our own ingenuity, creativity, practical faithfulness, and best practices. We abandon all hope of saving ourselves or being saved by others. We repent 
of all but the good news of the kingdom of God. We need to hear this today. So much hope has been played, particularly, I want to go at this one for just a second, particularly in political salvation. Oh, here he goes, politics. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about repentance. I'm talking about the kingdom of God. There is one one king. What's controversial about that? Unless we failed to repent. Unless we've failed to believe that there is one king. He's going to establish it. Oh, may we be faithful. May there be good things. May we, may we be sad when good things pass away. Even good governments, it's okay to be sad. If there ever was one. <laughs> I never hoped there anyway. There's a king. And his kingdom is at hand when Jesus is nearby, friends. We need to repent. Mark my words. The answers to the key question of redemption. What is wrong with the world? What will make it right? And what is our glorious hope? Is absolutely increasingly in our culture being answered with political answers. Error. Error. There is a body politic. And it is a singular God on the throne of his kingdom. And the answer to the question, what is wrong with the world? What will make it right? And what is our glorious future hope has to be found in him alone, the end. Every other, every other thing has to be met with repentance. Every other thing. The kingdoms of this world must be repented of. God has come. And the kingdom of God is at hand. What other hope, all other hopes, all other salvation, all other rest must be laid aside as we enter into this kingdom by faith. And believe. Believe is what is turned to before we spend too much time thinking about what ought to be turned from. Let us remember what we are turning to. We are turning to Christ and his gospel as our only hope of absolute perfect righteousness and redemption. An eternal kingdom, perfect and complete, with an excellent law, a perfect justice, and a glorious future for all people who follow after him. Repent and believe. Listen, this is so important. Repent and believe is not something that you decide to do this morning. Repent and believe is a way of life that is entered into. Lord God, I from here and forever repent of all other things in faith that the kingdom of God is at hand. And you are the king. And I will follow after your gospel. This proclamation is Jesus' proclamation. And he moves very quickly, so we must also, to calling preachers. Preachers who would proclaim that Good news, who would repeat his words even as they watch him perform the good news. Jesus moves very quickly to the calling of preachers. 
He's in Galilee. He calls four people in our passage this morning. He calls Simon, Andrew, James, and John. This is a soft spot for me. Many, uh, one of the great joys of my life has been the joy of knowing that God has made me a preacher by his call and kindness and equipping in the church and others who have invested in me. That is a great joy of mine to equip others, to call others to be ministers of the gospel and teach them how to preach. It is honestly one of, it might be, the greatest privilege that I have in ministry and have enjoyed. But there is also a soft spot for me in the way that this goes down in this particular passage. Look at it. Verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he, Simon, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Who were they? Who were they? Fishermen. I know, I know, I know, I know. But who were they first in the passage? They were bros. They were brothers. I know, I'm talking to the young people here. I'm talking to the people who are going to be hanging out playing Captures the Flag this afternoon. Many of you are looking for friends. Many of you are looking for buddies, someone to hang out with. I know. I hope that you have them, and I hope you have them for many, many years to come. But I want to let you know that many of your, I know it's not true of all of the households, but in many of your households, God in his providence has literally put a cradle next to your bed. And that's your buddy. I wonder, what would it be like for you to, maybe right now it's awkward, like I'm not going to look over and look at my sibling, be super awkward, everybody's looking at me, my parents are here and everything. But to think of your brother, your sister right now and think, what would it be like if the two of us followed Jesus? Imagine Simon. Imagine Andrew looking at each other. He just called us. Do you want to go? Do you want to follow after him? And they got up and they went as brothers together to follow after Jesus. It's good to have friends. It's good to have buddies. It's good to have someone hang out with. But if God in his providence, if God in his providence has given you a brother or a sister, go to Jesus with them and don't leave them behind for someone you meet at college. It's a bit of an aside. A soft spot, but an aside. Four main ideas in the text quickly. The first is when Jesus speaks to them, he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me. Don't follow a teaching. Don't follow a worldview. Don't follow a philosophy. Don't follow a political ideology. Follow who? Me. Who is me? The king. Follow the king. The kingdom is at hand. Follow me. We follow a person. The Spirit of God has made me a lover of truth since a very young age. It's just a thing. I don't know when exactly I first started thinking about the word truth, but it means a lot to me. But I remember the day, I remember the car I was sitting in, and I remember the road I was on when my youth pastor turned, my friend, turned to aside to me and said, you know, Jeremiah, I know truth is a big deal to you, but did you know that truth has a name? 
I said, oh, and his name is Jesus. You see, we don't follow an idea. We don't follow a doctrine alone. We follow a person who has given us teachings about himself. If you're following the king, if you're following the person, Jesus Christ, and heeding his words, you're probably in his kingdom. (laughs) You're probably within a hand's breadth of his domain. James Edwards, one commentator, he writes, in Jesus of Nazareth, the kingdom of God makes a personal appearance. Jesus is the shepherd who goes and gets his sheep. Here's what Jesus knows. He's walking along a sea one day, and there's fishermen, and they're doing fisherman stuff. But he knows something they don't. They belong to him. They belong to him. And he goes, and he calls their name. They didn't know it. He knew it. And he says their name, and they follow him. They don't even know until they hear the name, their name being called by the master. They belong to him, and now they do. And they follow after him. The next phrase, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. I would encourage you. There's a word in there that's worth underlining. It's the word become. Become fishers of men. Jesus will transform them. This is a call to service that will change who they are. I shall make you become fishers of men. This is a slow process of becoming a servant to the master Look at how hard it is for the disciples. It takes three years for them to get it right. And just before they finally get it right, they get it very, 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 very wrong. All right? I will make you become. Did they have any idea how long it would take to become servants of the master? Over three years, right through the resurrection, we see these followers become fishers of men. I hope that encourages you. He's making you become one who is actually useful in his kingdom. Be patient. Just keep following. The passage says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And then Mark uses his favorite word. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Later on, it says in verse 20, and immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee. Immediately they left. They left two nets and one father at the Sea of Galilee. Friends, this is true. And some won't know this more than others, but it's true for everyone. There is no such thing as repentance without loss. If you have repented of every other kingdom, you have also lost all the little temporal earthly joys of that kingdom. Some of you know that more than others. But friends, if you think you've repented and there has been no loss, that's not repentance. Something is left behind. They lost their profession. They lost intimacy with their father in the boat day by day serving with him. Jesus makes this clear. He makes it clear when he gets, by the time he gets, you will see this, the, the gospel of Mark turns at the end of chapter eight and into chapter nine, and he begins to talk more directly to the disciples, and he begins to become more forthright, and here's what he says to him right after he proclaims his own death. 
He says in 8, Mark 8, 35, 34 and 35, he says this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. If you think that you can repent but keep everything you had, you'll lose it all. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Why? How does that work? What's the math? What's the logic? How does that play out? You lose everything but Jesus, the king of all of creation, the one who has exercised redemption and secured a kingdom forever and ever and ever. You get him. They immediately left. And you know what they became? They became a new community, a new brotherhood. I hope that's an encouragement for those of you in this room whose brother or sister has not come or you don't have one. They became a new brotherhood. Even Peter and John and James became a special brotherhood within the scope of the disciples. They left and they became a new community. James Edwards, again, he writes this. It's not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus's public ministry in which he called four fishermen into a community with himself. What is Jesus doing in calling these four men? He's fashioning the church. That's how the church always grows. It doesn't grow by being a better greeter team, hiring a better pastor, coming up with a better discipleship strategy. The church always grows in the same way it was originally established, by the call of the master to identify a people that didn't even know they belonged to him. And he calls them by name, and he says, you're mine. Repent and believe in me. I would be a fool to think I could come up with a better application point this morning. The application for us this morning is clear, and I hope if you're listening, it's compelling. I hope this morning, one of you has heard your name. And I hope that you've heard it called, and I hope you see the kingdoms that you have to, that you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose them. He's clear and kind. He's up front. The kingdoms that you will lose to gain the king of all of creation and redemption. I pray this morning that every one of us would repent and that we would continue on or begin a life of repentance of all the kingdoms of this world and believe in the king and his kingdom this morning. Heavenly Father, you know how to say their name. So I ask you that your spirit would call the name of a man, a woman, a young man, a young woman this morning and tell them, you're mine. Follow me. Your sins are forgiven by my gospel. I am your new king. Repent and believe. And Lord, for all of us who remember we've been called by name, we belong to you, I pray that you would show us, as you so often did, as these men in this passage became fishers of men, they learned how to follow you through many repentings. I pray that you would teach us to repent this morning of every other 
kingdom. Thank you, Lord. Teach us to sing your praise, to enjoy losing our life, to gain the king. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the king's name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.